Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, they say you learn something new every day. And I happened to come across a random fact this past week that stood out uh, to me. If I, if I were to ask you what the tallest mountain in the world is, I'm sure most of us would immediately say uh, Mount Everest. And that would not be wrong. By standard measurements, it is the tallest mountain with an elevation of just over 29,000 feet. However, according to some, Mount Everest is technically not the tallest mountain on earth. Taking all things into consideration, many give first place to a mountain called uh, uh, Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Now, when you look at that mountain, it doesn't look anywhere near to be the tallest mountain. That's because the majority of it is underwater. can't see it. And if you measure this mountain from its base at the ocean floor, it surpasses even Mount Everest. So the mountain doesn't look like much, but when you understand how far it reaches down, then you can't help but be impressed with how tall it is. Now, when I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think that that provides a good analogy for what I'm trying to get across with also the, ser- the sermon theme this afternoon. I can, I can tell you that God loves you, and perhaps you would appreciate very much to hear that and to know that. However, there are times when we might n- not be that impressed with God's love. We might not understand how truly great it is how big it is, how high it reaches. But that's also why we study the Bible's teaching about our sin. That's why it's important that we know our sin and our misery. You see, we really only understand how far down God's love reaches to save us when we understand the depths of of our sin and rebellion. And when we do understand the depths of our sin, how deep it goes, it's then that we can really rejoice and glorify God for the heights of His love. And that brings us to the sermon theme. We need to know the depths of our sin to understand the heights of God's love look at three main things. First of all, why we need to know our sin. Uh, secondly, how we, how we know our sin. And uh, finally, what our sin shows us about God's love. So, the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, begins with our beautiful confession of faith in Lord's Day 1. My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. Without my Father's will, not a hair can fall from my head, and all things must work together for my salvation. And yet after that beautiful confession of faith, we turn to Lord's Day 2. And Lord's Day 2 begins with Uh, begins what seems to be a rather depressing section of the catechism, a stark contrast to Lord's Day 1. 
You'll notice the heading above Lord's Day 2. It says in bold letters, Our Sin and Misery. Not a very popular topic, I might add. And so we might ask, why do we study this? Why do we take the time to dig into Scripture's teaching about sin and God's judgment? Is it just to keep us down in the dumps, perhaps? And to that, we can answer, while studying our sin and God's judgment would do that, if that's all we knew. We would become depressed if we did not move on from there to the good news of Christ. And remember, we are studying our sin and misery in light of our confession made already in question and answer one. We belong to Christ. And look at what we read in question and answer two. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The joy of it. First thing we need to know is how great my sins and misery are. It's kind of a, an interesting thing, isn't it? We need to know our sin and misery so that we might live in joy. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. We need to hear the bad news of our sin before we truly rejoice in the good news of Christ. And you see this sort of thing uh, throughout Scripture, too, as you read the Bible. I just think of the book of Romans, for example. You know, in Romans 1, the verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul, he writes those well-known words about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? That sounds like a really positive message, and it is. Paul is eager to tell the gospel. The gospel means good news, a message of beautiful salvation to everyone who believes. And so we might think, this sounds great, Paul. Tell us this good news. We want to hear it. And yet the very next words out of his mouth in verse 18, or off of his pen, is this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What happened there? The Apostle Paul seemed eager to tell us the good news of Christ, but then he immediately starts talking about the wrath of God and, and human sin. That doesn't sound like good news. However, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, will get to the good news of Christ. In fact, the gospel is nowhere more beautifully described than in the book of Romans, I would say. But before he describes that beautiful gospel, he first needs to paint the backdrop of human sin and God's judgment on sin. So he says, after saying 
such wonderful things about the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, if we do not understand our sin and misery, we would never find our only comfort in Christ. We wouldn't do it. You know, if we didn't understand our sin, we would think we could, we could do it all on our own. No, we would believe that humans are fundamentally good, and God would accept us as long as we try our best. So many people in this world have that perspective. Reminds me of the lyrics to an old country song by Alan Jackson. The song is called, Where I Come From. In that song, he sings... Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven. Where I come from. Working hard to get to heaven. That's the perspective of so many people. That's the idea behind so many religions. But it's not the Christian faith. And if we did not know our sin and misery, our only comfort in life and in death would be, well, I've lived a pretty good life and God will accept me because what a good little boy I have been. But when we know our sin, we won't find our comfort in ourselves. We won't find our comfort in other people like us. Instead, we will find our only comfort in life and in death in the one place that it is secure, in our Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that is where we must find it. So that's the goal of studying our sin. It's meant to bring us to the joy of faith when it brings us to Christ, the only Savior. Brings us to our second point. So, so, having seen the need to know our sin and misery, the next logical question is found in Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sin and misery? And the answer is from the law of God. And that's one of the purposes of God's law, to reveal sin, uh, to convict of sin, point out sin. See, the law of God, it, it's like a, you can think of it like a measuring stick. Right? Think of a big ruler, perhaps a meter stick. The measuring stick sets the standard of right and wrong. And anything that falls short of that measuring stick is sin. So one of the purposes of the measuring stick of God's law is so that we can measure ourselves against it. We can look at our, our actions, our desires, our words our thoughts, and we can compare it next to the law of God. And if we fall short of that standard, if we don't measure up, and we don't, then we know we have sinned. That's how God's law functions. You see, so many people don't understand they're sinful They think they're pretty good people, but the problem is they're measuring themselves 
uh, with, by the wrong standard. Right? They're not measuring themselves next to God's law. Maybe they're comparing themselves to other people. Or maybe they just think whatever the group does is right, and as long as enough people are doing it, I'm okay. Or else they don't understand how awful sin really is. And we ourselves, often we do not understand the depths of our own sin. Think about what we read in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? You know, ask someone if they've ever murdered, murdered someone, and most people will say, oh, not even close. I don't even own a gun. I've never pulled a trigger on anyone before. Well, that may be all well and good, but what about this? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever bullied or threatened someone in your life? Have you ever been consumed by envy or anger towards another person? Have you ever taken revenge? Have you ever wished someone would get sick or even die? If the answer is yes to any of those things, you've fallen short of God's perfect measuring stick. You've broken God's law and you have sinned. As the Lord Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Right? We have not lived up to the standard of God's law. We have not. And Christ is pointing that out to us by words such as this. You see, the Word of God, one purpose is to come to us and shake us out of our self-delusion that in ourselves we are, are good and good enough for God. Look at how this happens in Isaiah 5. The Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, he pronounces a series of woes on Israel. And the term woe was used to declare God's ch- uh, coming judgment on sinful people. We hear this repeatedly in Isaiah 5, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20. Woe to those who call good or evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So those are the woes, and then the conclusion comes in the next few verses. Therefore, as the tongues of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Right? God reveals our sin through His word, through His law. 
And with the revelation of our sin, he also shows a judgment we deserve, as he does here in this chapter. The thing is, even if we think we have escaped those woes in Isaiah 5 that they don't apply to us, look at what happens in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 switches. Isaiah describes a vision of the Lord that nearly gives him a nervous breakdown. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, a type of angel. They each had six wings. With their wings they covered their feet, their faces, and with two they flew. And one seraphim called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? And the triple use of the word holy here is for emphasis. God has absolute, complete holiness, not one speck of impurity or sin. And at the sound of his voice, the foundations of the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke. And when Isaiah saw this, it was all too much for him. He sees this vision of the Lord confronted with the holiness of God And he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is overcome with the holiness and the majesty and the purity of God. And when he experiences this, he, he just knows He knows that he has not measured, that he is a sinner. And this vision of the Lord strikes him in his very heart, and he can't help but say, right, I'm lost. I'm done for. I have unclean lips, and even the fact that I live among people with unclean lips, that seems like it's going to do me in in the presence of this God. It's amazing, actually. In chapter 5, he proclaimed the woes on the people of Israel. But when he has this close encounter with God, he proclaims a woe on himself. And he feels that judgment upon himself must be imminent. And make no mistake, we would do the same if we were in Isaiah's shoes. Isaiah had unclean lips, as he confessed, and so do we. You know, how, how many words have we not spoken that are not 100% pure? And Christ says in, in Matthew 12, on the day of judgment, we all have to give account for every careless word that we have ever spoken. And when you hear something like that, then you know, then you understand no, you're not going to make it on your own. If you're working hard to get to heaven, as that old country song goes, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. See, we know our sin and misery not only from the law of God. We also know it from God himself. What do I mean by that? Well, God's law is a reflection of God's own character. God's law is 
is a reflection of his righteousness, his holiness, his purity. And so when we study God himself in Scripture, we can also measure ourselves next to him. And when we see that perfection, we know we have fallen short of his glory. You know, this passage in Isaiah 6 is the perfect example. Remember Isaiah's words, Woe is me, for I am lost. It strikes him in his very soul. It's not just that way for Isaiah. It would be the same for us too. That brings us to our last point. Now at this point, as we have just dug into human sin and God's holiness, we need to remember why we study these things. Why do we study our sin and God's judgment on sin? It's not just to make us quake with fear as Isaiah did and, and leave it at that. No, it's not. You see, magnifying the holiness of God and our sin is also meant to magnify at the same time the grace and the love of God. We see this too in Isaiah 6. Now, as right after Isaiah proclaims woe on himself, one of the seraphim flew to him. In his hand, he had some tongs. With those tongs, he had grasped a burning coal from the altar in the temple. And with that burning coal and those tongs, he flew towards Isaiah. You know, Isaiah nearly had a nervous breakdown already, but he must have been even more nervous now. Here comes this seraphim, this mighty angel, bringing a burning coal to a sinner. It doesn't sound like a happy ending is coming. It sounds more like judgment is coming on the man with unclean lips. But just when he probably thinks he's going to get judgment, Isaiah receives grace. He receives grace. Seraph took the burning coal, touched Isaiah's mouth, and he said, Hold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. You know, what beautiful words uh, that must have been in Isaiah's ears after he'd just seen this vision of the Lord, after he just, after his cry of distress just moments before, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. How wonderful for him. Notice what the seraph doesn't say. He doesn't say to Isaiah, you know, stop being so hard on yourself, Isaiah. You're saying it's no big deal. You're actually a pretty good guy, so stop worrying. No. He proclaims the good news that, Isaiah, yes, you are a sinner, but your sin has been paid for. It's been removed, taken away for good. And now Isaiah can stand in the presence of God with such overwhelming fear. How relieved and joyful he must have been. 
And this is the same grace and love we receive from God in Christ Jesus. Listen to Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's us too, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or listen to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Same grace shown to Isaiah, shown to us in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ died for you on the cross so that your guilt would be removed. Your sin would be atoned for. And He died to make it possible for us to enter the presence of God without fear. You see, we need to see, first of all, how great our sin is, also compared next to holy God, so that we see how gracious God is to us. You know, think of Isaiah in the presence of God. He knew he couldn't stand before God as he was. God, who cannot look upon sin, would be perfectly just to punish Isaiah right then and there. But God gave us his very Son, Guilt is atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no mountain of love taller than that from a God who has reached down to the very depths and pulled us up and saved us by His grace. And this grace and love of God, it it changes us, it reorients our, our life. Look at what happened to Isaiah. He came into the presence of holy God. He thought he was going to die. Then God declared that his sin was paid for. And what do we, what do we read next? Oh, we see Isaiah eager to serve. Eager to serve his God who saved him. In verse 8, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. Right, when you hear the, the Lord ask the question, you almost see Isaiah jumping up and down, right? Ooh, pick me, pick me, send me, send me, Lord. And so when you study this passage here in Isaiah 6, you can see a pattern. First, we have Isaiah's sin. Then we have Isaiah's salvation. Then we have Isaiah's service. Or we could put it like this. First, we see Isaiah's guilt. Then we see God's grace. And then we see Isaiah's gratitude. And this is also what we have in the catechism. Look, look again at question and answer two. What must I need? What must I know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Beloved, we, like Isaiah, are sinners in ourselves who by ourselves cannot stand in the presence of God. But we, like Isaiah, 
recipients of the wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, let that change you. Let it change you like it changed Isaiah. Be eager to serve God with your whole life. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing Psalm 25, stanzas 2, 3, and 4.